Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash movie. You know what I'm going to say. Another busy programme ahead of us this Monday night here on RT Radio 1. So let's get on with it and start by saying hello to Terry Flanagan, who's in Dublin 15. How are things up there in your part of the world, Terry? Oh, things are great. Miserable weather, I'd say. But uh, it's typical, isn't it? November, December weather. Anyway, only a couple of weeks to go. Shortest day of the year. And then, guess what? The day length is increasing. So looking forward to that. Terry Flanagan, thank you very much indeed. Niall Hatch is out in Greystones in County Wicklow. How are you getting on, Niall? I'm very good, Derek. Thank you. Um, yeah, real drop in temperature lately, so I've definitely been enjoying watching the birds coming into my garden. That's been a big highlight over the last week for me. Now, talk about watching the birds. This is a good time of year, if not the perfect time of year, to watch starling murmurations. And that's what you've been all about, Terry. Yeah, I suppose with the arrival of winter, one of the things I really like to see is a starling murmuration. Get out there and see it. It's something we've been doing on the programme for many years here now. We've been to Loch Enlock. God knows I don't know how many times we've been down to, to see people like Eugene Dunbar and Derry Kilroy. We've had fantastic murmurations down there. I've been to Nobber a few years before that. I know you've been to Belfast a number of times many, to see them many, up there many, on many, the Lagan. Many, many times indeed on the Lagan, yeah. Fantastic natural spectacle to see. So I'd advise anyone to get out there and have a look at it over this winter. Niall, I suppose we should really explain exactly what a starling murmuration is. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm very much with Terry there about how wonderful this is. And what it is, essentially, it's, it's a big, big flock of starlings who every evening in the winter, before they go to sleep to roost for the night, they gather into a big flock in the sky and they all gather and they, they, they display more and more starlings join until all of a sudden it looks like wisps of smoke in the sky and they start to behave almost like a single organism. They stop almost being individual birds and it's almost like they have a collective mind that somehow is governing what the flock does. And all of a sudden they go start swooping and swirling, taking on all these beautiful, astonishing patterns. And as Terry said, it is one of the most amazing sights in all of nature. Uh, I'm sure people have seen videos of it. What, what they don't convey usually, though, is the sound of it as well. If you're really close to them, like you can be at Loch Enel there at Lilliput, and that's a place that where Terry and I have seen them before many times. It actually sounds like the, the roar of a jet engine as they're passing you, the, all these wings flapping together. It's just incredible. And what they do is they mill around like this for several minutes, just as it's getting dark, just before dusk. And then all of a sudden, at some, at some unknown signal, they just suddenly fall silent, disappear into the trees or into the reeds and just go to sleep. And then in the morning they wake up and they fly out and go to feed in the wider countryside. It's really remarkable. It really is extraordinary stuff and that's what your report is about this week, Terry. Yes it is and Derek I've been to a new location one that I haven't been to before. Ricky Whelan of Birdwatch Ireland got in touch to say a murmuration was taking place in County Leash just a couple of hundred metres from the M8. I met up with Ricky just before dusk. Here's the first group coming in here now, Terry. Oh, I can see them. There's not an awful lot of them, but it's still quite bright yet. It is, and they'll start coming in in sort of small groups, in dribs and drabs, as a dark approaches. Which now, is... I can see that group is, is, is gone over those trees. We can't see them anymore. Tell us exactly where we are, Ricky. We're down in a certain part of Leash, very near the village of Balacolla, just off the M8 motorway. And it's sort of a strange place maybe to be on the lookout for a wildlife spectacle. It's right beside the motorway services. We can actually see the motorway from here. We can hear the traffic going by. And there's a, there's a factory here beside us as well. Yeah, you absolutely can. There's a quarry, uh, a stone quarry here working away in the background. And actually a forestry operation as well. So, and, and look, just as you say that, another group has come in and have gone. Now, there's probably, what, 50, 100 birds in that? 50, 100 birds in each group. And they will coalesce into a bigger starling murmuration, which we're hopefully here to see this evening. Yeah. And get that spectacle that it is now how long has this been happening here in this location this has been ongoing for about a month now i suppose since it was first picked up now it's not quite dark yet it's but it's just pre-dusk it's a little bit after sunset it's still quite bright but we can see the birds and they all seem to be very very active yeah just before dusk the birds will start arriving from their feeding areas Mm. where they've been out all day in farmland and in woodland uh, feeding on various invertebrates and vegetative matter and then they'll all and there's another group just gone overhead as we're talking brilliant yeah that's a bigger group there yeah now and the worry I have about that when they're going overhead is they do poo a lot they do they do and when there's so many of them they, uh, people do have problems where they roost near their houses and under their properties so they do gather up a lot of guano should we say yeah now this phenomenon which we refer to as a murmuration this only occurs in winter time and early spring 
Yeah, absolutely. So from about October onwards, these murmurations can form and it's made up of resident birds who have bred in Ireland during the summertime and people will be familiar with them in parks and gardens and they nest in the roofs and, and fascia boards and even in, in tree holes and all sorts of places. But the population is very much supplemented in the winter from birds from the continent. And we know that from bird ringing data showing us that birds come from Estonia, from Poland and as far north as even Russia. So the most of these birds that we're watching, and there's another group there just going overhead, they're much tighter packed together, that group. But I was going to say that they're not Irish birds. No, well, there'll be a mix of Irish birds and continental birds, probably. Well, is this a silly question? How do they get on together? Well, I don't think they discriminate, to be honest. They're not like humans. From a bird's point of view, is it's all about survival. Yeah, but does an Irish bird know that this is a foreign bird? I don't think so. I don't right. know if that's been proven. And they become quite outside of the breeding season when they don't need to be territorial. They're not on in competition for resources. They become quite gregarious. Yeah. And the, the murmuration is a social thing. It's for safety. It's for warmth. And then they'll all come together in this huge group. It's like a shoal of fish. People you're familiar with, they'll see, have seen that James Cromie photo last year in the Irish Times. Yeah which became famous and award-winning and that's what we're looking at we're looking at these big shoals of birds and how it works is they follow the seven nearest birds to them and that's how they stay in that synchronicity it's really interesting how they do it so where we are now here there's a woodland just in front of us and this is where you think they're going to end up yeah there's a block of woodland here it's conifer woodland and they've chosen this site for the last couple of seasons to roost along with other corvids such as jackdaws and rooks which are after gathering here in fine numbers as well this evening well before we actually started recording it there was thousands of rooks that went overhead and there was an incredible sound from them as well yeah what, no, are, what are they up to they're doing the very same thing so rooks famously they stage before they go to roost and what a roost is basically is where birds sleep birds don't sleep in a nest uh, during the winter at all they normally roost together for warmth to exchange information and to stay safe from predators Mm -hmm. now it's getting quite dark now it's not dark dark but we can still see the birds flying and there are more and more of them and there are more in each group yeah they will so they'll as i said the murmuration will keep growing and growing as birds arrive from around sorry to cut across see the way it's it's the shape of it. It's just like a lava lamp. Do you remember the old lava lamps? Look at the way they're Absolutely. turning and twisting. I, I, I can't put words on it exactly. No, it's difficult to put words on it. Like the, the, the fish shoal, the lava lamp formation or whatever. It's, it's, and that is designed to confuse predators. You'll have a would-be sparrowhawk or a peregrine falcon from a local nest will try have a go at those birds. So what they're trying to do is move in unison so you're not the last one left out of the group. Now and those ones there have actually landed. They've dropped down into the tree. Are they gone now for the night? They'll settle for the night unless they're disturbed now for some reason to... Uh, by the rooks maybe will shift them or whatever but they should they'll probably settle down for a night it can be quite noisy for a while yeah. um, and they can be chattering for a while and they're telling each other where the local food source is what's going on what the dangers they're are after, they're after rising there now it's certainly half of them have, have risen up yeah they'll, they'll sort of move around a bit again and resettle and then it'll all go quiet and you won't even know they're there it's, it's quite interesting yeah. and all the time smaller and smaller groups are coming in from different sides from all around because we've got a great view of the sky here we've got 360 degree view yeah no we have and they'll be birds that will have fed in various sites they'll be exploiting different farms around the area here uh, every day because they couldn't if the 20,000 were to stay together there wouldn't yeah. be enough food for them so they have to split so, up so you reckon there's about 20,000 here I would say on the peak here yeah absolutely now look at them again they're just coming in a group so it's as if they kind of drop out of the sky fall out of the sky and disappear into the trees now the trees they're about what they're about 100 metres away from us yeah, they are at least. So it's uh, no, they do drop like stone, and then they go completely quiet. And that's a, I suppose that's an anti-predator defence. So they just yeah. are hidden for the night. Now, what happens when they land here? Are they just going to sit still for the night? They'll sit still for the night. They'll empty themselves. They'll chat. They'll exchange information, and they'll stay warm and huddle together. And uh, unless they're disturbed, yeah, they'll sit tight till morning. And because a bird's a bird hasn't got the resources to expend energy sort of needlessly so they have to conserve that energy because the next feed they will get will be after light tomorrow morning when they can recruit that fat again they will lose a lot of fat overnight so these birds once they've landed they're going to spend about 16 hours in that one position without feeding yeah absolutely because here's more coming in just overhead look look just overhead here now yep quite a small bush coming very very close to us as well that group and now they've turned and they've gone away sorry i was saying they'll sit for about 16 hours yeah, they'll sit tight, like I said, and conserve the energy uh, before the morning, before they can recruit that, their, their first feed early in the morning, the first light, because they won't venture out in the dark. Mm-hmm. It's too dangerous. Is it good to get in early or to get in late with these birds when they're coming? Because they're coming from all over the place. I think probably the, the strategy is get in early and find a good position and, and roost up in the middle of the... Oh, look at those. Here's more. 
these are these are a mix rock, of rooks, rooks and, 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 jackdaws. and jackdaws you can hear there so they're going to roost as well so they're farming what their own murmuration I suppose it's a murder of crows we're witnessing yeah. and they're it's heading incredible. into the woodland so just as well. look going right overhead here just listen to them and both the starlings and the, and the crows seem to have the same requirements for a roost site they need big mature trees where they're safe they have plenty of cover and they choose conifers because there's a bit more shelter and they, they haven't lost their, 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 their leaves or whatever so it's a bit more insulated for them overnight it's a wonderful site I'd have to say of all the things that I've experienced in nature a starling murmuration has got to be up there right at the top it's a massive spectacle and I would think it contends with any other of the African spectacles of anything in the Americas it's really really worth uh, getting out once a year to see it Thank you very much indeed Terry and as Terry has suggested if you haven't already done so before why not do it this year get out around dusk and have a look at a starling murmuration I promise you will not be disappointed Now you know the old adage think globally act locally it urges people to consider the health of the entire planet and to take action in their own communities Few do this better than Irish farmers who are showing that their work can be a part of nature and not apart from it Farmer Nia O'Malley works 38 acres in the Schlievochty Mountains in County Galway. Nia is part of a hen harrier project which rewards farmers to help the species and the habitats on which they depend. Recently, she took a breather from her work on the farm to speak with Richard Collins and Niall Hatch. So Nia, tell us a bit about your farm. I believe you took it over in 2010. You moved back home and bought it from your, your parents. What sort of condition was it in at that stage? Well, my mum had kind of slowed down on farming at that stage. And so there was about 10 years where she didn't have any livestock on the farm. And yeah, I was just quite surprised at how backward it had got. And it was very much overtaken with scrub and thick rush. And uh, yeah, it was a surprise to me. It took me the best part of 10 years to uh, bring it back so that I could have grazing to keep livestock on it. And how important is it to you to manage for the wildlife on the farm as well? I think there's often a perception that people can just leave farmland to go back to nature and that'll be good for wildlife. But actually, that's not the case. Yeah, we all talk about rewilding and let nature take over. But for me up here in the uplands, it was quite the opposite. And it really showed the importance of farming in terms of managing that ground and managing that overgrowth of scrub. You know, we can go in there mechanically and do it, but there's nothing better than a herd of cows or sheep to do that. And that was exactly what I saw was the importance of farming and grazing within the uplands to maintain a good habitat for biodiversity. You know, when it becomes too overgrown with scrub, you really don't have a habitat. You know, the rush becomes too thick, the scrub becomes too thick, the millennia grass takes over. And yeah, there's very little life in my fields. And uh, now with a couple of years of grazing, it's just done a complete turnaround. It's been great. And of course, in a natural setting, I suppose, before we humans came on the scene, there would have been wild grazing animals, different types of deer and so on that would have grazed that land. And of course, it falls now to farmers to fill in that gap and make sure that those lands are managed for wildlife. Is that the thinking behind why you got involved with the hen harrier project? The hen harrier is one of my, my favourite birds. I know it's a very important indicator species. And so, so tell us a bit more about that and why you got involved with that in the first place. Yeah, so I was farming here for a few years and then the hen harrier project approached the local farmers and educated us on the hen harrier and the importance of it as an indicator species. You know, if the hen harrier is in trouble, it does tell us that everything below it is in trouble, going from the birds to the small mammals, you know, the mice, the, even down to the frogs in the stream, the newts, even down to the insects, down to the actual soil microbiology. Bit of an eye-opener to see that because my mum would have always had hen harriers flying around here. It was just the norm. And then for me to come here and it to be such a rare occasion to see a harrier, it was quite the eye-opener to see that, how far back we had come in this local area up in the hills. So, yeah, it was great being part of the project and, you know, just working with the different farmers here and just looking at how we do things, grazing being one of them, opening up areas where animals wouldn't have been able to access to graze. You know, they helped us with that through funding for crossings and culverts and putting in water access and this all helped tackle some scrub areas and particularly the mountain grazing as well. Just we had all sort of pulled back from mountain grazing thinking, oh, it's just wasteland. And they really educated us on the importance and the nutrition value of the mountains during those summer months. And then in turn, we we're able to save our lower fields. But that mountain grazing just helped tackle the millennia grass, which in turn helped prevent fires 
and then in turn allowed the heather to come back because the heather was being swamped by the uh, bulimia grass. That in itself then created nice uh, nesting grounds for the hen harrier. So yeah, it's been a, a good journey. Nia, I've heard that the hen harrier referred to as the seagull hawk. Well, now that, of course, refers to the male. And I've often seen them in the distance and mistaken them for gulls until I got closer. So it is like that. But we should tell our listeners how to recognise them. It's no scandal not to recognise them. William Turner, the great namer of birds in the 16th century, thought there were two separate species. He thought the males were a different species to the females. And he made that mistake with thrushes as well. He thought the fieldfare and the missile thrush were the same species. So um, have you any tips on how people can distinguish between, say, the female and buzzards? And people nowadays think they see red kites and things. You're right in that they, the male and the female are quite different. The male is sort of a blue-grey, beautiful bird, absolutely stunning bird with black tips. And then the female, she's a brown, sort of tan and brown bird, you know, kind of striping through her wings. But they're both quite distinctive in their own way, but she's quite distinctive in that she's got sort of a white rump. So there really is no mistaking her. Once you see her rump, you know it's her. Absolutely stunning, beautiful birds. And the harrier, I suppose, differs in that you'll see them often quartering. So they're sort of flying low to the ground and they're sort of zigzagging back and forth and up and down. So they're quite different in that way. It's beautiful to watch. And they do this sort of sky dance as well. And that's amazing to see that. But that's where the male would fly up. He's sort of courting the female. He flies up and he up and down. And it's just a beautiful sight to see. And then they would do this sort of food pass, which is quite unique to them, where the female would fly up from her nest and then sort of rotates onto her back. And then the male would drop his caught prey down and then she catches it as it falls from the air. So quite unique displays for the harrier and yeah quite distinctive so no mistake in them once you see them you'll know they're just fantastic beautiful birds uh, nia we often think of birds of prey as being very quick very fast species but i think the hen harrier is a master at flying slowly that's really part of the key to their hunting success isn't it it is yeah they do they sort of and that's why the farming activities up here are so important that we do graze off our fields that we do create these nice tufts and lows because the small mice and shrew that can be running around the you know the scrub, the rushes, they're going from a high tussock of grass to a low tussock of grass. And that's how the harrier hunts. They hunt close to the ground and they're catching these little mice as they run across the field or as you know, the meadow pipits are hopping through the heather and the commonage of the mountains. So that's kind of how they fly is quite low to the ground and sort of back and forth watching for prey. So quite beautiful. And once you spot them, you could just sit there for ages and just watch them hovering and flying and dipping and swooping. So, yeah, quite a stunning bird. And whenever I see a hen harrier as well, they often remind me of being somewhere between a hawk and an owl almost. They have very good hearing and they have a, a, a sort of a facial disc on their face, rather like the face of an owl that helps to focus that sound into their ears. So I've always been very impressed by the way they do that. Do you get to observe them hunting very much in the sleeve octis and how are the numbers doing there in the mountains? Yeah, so yeah, the first year or two you might see one going over and you're delighted and you report the sighting to the hen harrier project. And, you know, this year, the difference this year, there wasn't a week that went by where you didn't see a harrier. So they've really sort of come back into the area. And that's been fantastic. I'm here in the Sea of Octis, and I'm on the Galway side of it. And this year was the first year that we had chicks fledge in County Galway in years. So the project is really working. There really is starting to see a comeback in this beautiful bird. Nia, I always think of the hen harrier as a bird of the fringes, of the margins, in a sense. It likes young woodland. Its recovery here was due to the coniferous planting in the 1950s and 60s. Now, it likes to have a forest nearby and then to move out into open ground to hunt for little birds and frogs and mice and so on and so forth. Now, is your farm, has it this kind of varied woodland or is there a hope that they might nest on your farm? Yeah, so I suppose young forestry is good. Uh, they do, they, they like to nest in the young plantations or in newly cleared plantations. And this is partly why we're seeing a bit of a comeback here in the Octis. Now, unfortunately, their demise in the Octis has always been forestry. 55% of the state of Octis would be covered in forestry plantation. And this has played a role in their demise. 
you know, there are predators can hide there, the foxes, the pine marten. There's very little land within the Slivoktis that's more than 500 metres from a forestry plantation. So it's not given a huge amount of protection to the nests, but it also means that the harrier hunting ground has, is greatly reduced and the, it usually involves flying great distances over forestry plantation to the next mountain to do some hunting. And oftentimes the nest can be raided on their return. So yes, young plantation and clear plantation is good, but unfortunately the thick coniferous plantation once mature is not favourable for the harrier. So that is something that's up against us here in the Slave Octis. But in terms of farming practices, I think that's where we're seeing the big change just in how farmers manage their land. So instead of clear topping or clear mowing a whole field of rushes, farmers are encouraged to leave some parts so that the harry has some hunting ground you know, where the mice can hide and things like that. So I think there's two things happening here is the forestry plantation has been cleared because it's reached maturity since it's been planted in the 70s and 80s. But we're also seeing farming activities change as well that's been conducive to good nesting and good hunting ground. Now, you're, the great new enemy of the Harrier, some people think, is, of course, the windmill. The windmills have arrived on the mountains. Now, there's one school of thought which says, well, the Harrier flies low. He has his head down looking for things in the grass, or she has her head down, the female. And therefore, she, he's and she, they're below the turbine blades, so they're not quite as vulnerable as other birds of prey might be, and we don't have thermals. The other aspect of that, of course, is the the Harrier has shown itself to be fairly indifferent or tolerant of people. They can put up with people and not worry about people. So the same happens when it comes to windmills. Now, the ones in your farm around your area, presumably, as you say, they fly long distances. Does that mean they must encounter windmill farms on the way or are they threatened by that? Is there any evidence that this is causing damage? I suppose it comes down to their territories, their hunting territory is reduced. I mean, you take the sea boxes here, so much of it is covered in forestry plantation. And this is causing the harrier to maybe hunt in those open mountains where there might be a winter turbine farm. That's the problem. If the harrier had plenty of hunting ground, it wouldn't necessarily need to hunt in those areas where there's greater risk of interference with the wind turbines. So I think that's the problem more so. I think it might be interesting for us to look at maybe reducing the amount of plantation within any of the SPAs. You look at um, Seabock's SPA when it was assigned an SPA for the hen harry and the merlin. The numbers back then were 27 pairs here in Seabock's and it's down now to six pairs with an increase this year of seven pairs. Now farming has changed and farming has improved and agriculture has improved but unfortunately there is still the same percentage of forestry and I think that's probably where the problem lies. I think we may need to address the cover of forestry within our SBAs. I think this is where we need to look at now and see if that can be reduced so that the harrier then has more open ground for hunting and less chance of prey and being attacked and then obviously less chance then of going into more dangerous areas such as wind turbine farms. I understand they like forest that is less than 15 years old but once it hits 15 years it becomes unattractive to them so -hmm. it seems to be a matter of replanting or getting rid of the older trees or something like that or would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when you look here at the Slivoktis with so much forestry plantation, the hen harrier is an indicator species, and if that's in trouble, then everything else is in trouble. So we're looking at this as a biodiversity crisis, but we're also looking at this as a climate crisis. The Slivoktis is predominantly blanket bog, and most of that has been planted with forestry. So I think by addressing forestry cover here in the Slivoktis, we'll be tackling two things. We'll be tackling our biodiversity crisis, but also our climate crisis. Blanket bog has huge capacity to store and sequester carbon. And I think looking at the bigger picture here, I think that might be our goal here is to tackle the percentage of forestry here in Slovakia and maybe look at that. Are you supported? This is a rather sensitive question, perhaps, but an awful lot in this sort of thing depends on local support and approval of what you are doing, both by political bodies, county councils and NGOs and so forth, and the public at large. Would you like to comment on whether or not you are supported in the Schlievotis or whether there are enemies or antagonisms, shall we say? I would say that there's huge support for the likes of the Hen Harrier project here. We also have curly monitoring here. We have Merlin monitoring. We have grouse in the local lake here. We've 
freshwater pearl mussel. So everyone's quite supportive of what's going on here. And I think there's an awareness now with people and the importance of our biodiversity, but also in terms of our climate. So yet yeah, the NPWS, the local hen projects, the local EIPs such as Farm Pete and the Wild Atlantic Nature up in Connemara, they're all doing wondrous things for the biodiversity and for climate change in terms of bog regeneration and peatland regeneration. And I think there's a massive turnaround, there's a massive appreciation and an awareness out there now. And I just came back from the Burren Bio Winterage weekend there in Kinvara. And it was so inspiring and it was so enlightening to see everything from upland hill farmers to intensive farmers just having that light bulb moment and turning their farming practices around and to look at their farm totally different in terms of what can they do to make a change and to help the environment, obviously from a biodiversity view, but also from climate change. So, yeah, it's, I think the support is there. I think people have changed. People are seeing things quite differently now and I think people are moving away from intensive farming and it's nice to see that. Thank you very much indeed to Nia O'Malley. Now where are we going next? Oh yes, books, books, books. We get lots of books into the programme especially at this time of year. We can't get through all of them but we do make a selection. This one is very interesting. Let me tell you about the author first of all. Her name is Marie McGoran. She grew up on a family farm at the foot of Mullock Moor in the Burren where she developed a deep love and connection for the landscape. Locally, she provides walking tours of the Burren and her first book, Stones and Stories, is the name of one of those walks aimed at children aged four to eight. In it, Marie and illustrator Shane O'Donoghue bring the Burren alive for the reader in a way that allows the imagination to flow. Marie spoke with Mooney Goes Wild researcher John Bella Riley. This book is really for children and it's inviting children on a journey into nature, a journey of burn exploration and discovery. And it opens up a new world for children. For instance, one of the stories that I tell in my walks on the burn is the story of Uncle Mick and his goats. You know, why is he going to the mountain? There's a need there. What he encounters on the way. So it talks about the different habitats in the burn. You know, the wildflowers in bloom, the smell of the heather, all of this. As well as that, there's a fun element in the book. You know, Sammy the Snail. It's lovely bedtime story. It's a winding down at the end of the day for children. And it teaches us to slow down. And sometimes it's good for parents as well, so that they can read this story, slowing down in life. Reading a book together is bonding both for the parents and the child. And Sammy the Snail is not just in the burn, he's everywhere if you look around. So if you walk to school with your parents, try to spot Sammy the Snail. So there's a knock-on effect all around. There's less traffic, less congestion. As well as that in the book, there's an educational element. For instance, we focus on the animals that live in the burn. Example, the kingdom of the mouse is another lovely story. And the animals, they're having a conversation about where they live. They're like a big happy family. And the hare politely asks the mouse, what's your kingdom like? So they say this place was formed under the sea. I believed it was there before me. So there's an educational element there in the book. And lastly, um, it's about conserving our heritage. I always say to the kids when I'm out on the walk, what you know you love and what you love you protect. So it's hoped that the knowledge shared in these stories in the book and the poems and the captivating illustrations will inspire children and adults alike to take special care of this wondrous landscape. That was Marie McGarren, author of Stones and Stories, a children's book which brings the magic of the burn to life. John also spoke with Shane O'Donoghue about the approach he took to illustrating the book. The idea with illustrations is that we're not just matching the words on the page, but we're trying to capture the essence of the burn. So the key characters, you could say, are also the limestone rock. Uh, they're Mullockmore, the mountain, features a lot in, in the burn. And as you turn from page to page, you're getting this uh, kind of a magic of, of, of the burn, which is try- what you're trying to capture on page. So they're really colourful, and the techniques I would use to do that are watercolours, pen, ink, pencil. And then when you get to the digital side of things, you're, you're just kind of layering and collaging, trying to basically 
paint a picture for what the poem on the page is trying to say at the end of the day. A good illustration needs to be recognisable, but um, with visual research and chatting with Marie, we've so much back and forth that simple things came out, the crucial elements such as the goats observing people walking up on the cliffs, the giant's playground, which is a beautiful uh, part of the burn that people might be familiar with. The Hairy Molly was a good example where myself and Marie spent a lot of time trying to really bring out the character of, of, of the Hairy Molly and, and it isn't in fact the caterpillar of the small tortoise shell butterfly. So my interpretation would be quite different to Marie's. When Marie would come back to me, she's looking for the Hairy Molly to be much fuzzier, much bigger, much warmer. So through development in, in, in drawing, you're starting to really see what she sees almost. And by that, you're capturing a lot of the colours. And when you combine the Hairy Molly with the butterflies, the orchids, the bees, the karst landscape, you're really uh, pulling together a, a lot of that magic of the burn that we were trying to capture. I'm going to read um, Sammy the Snail. Sammy the snail lives in his little house, in a little habitat surrounded by rock. Says he, I carry my house wherever I go. Others in this place say it's slowly, slowly, slowly I go. But I am happy to carry my little house slowly with me, to view all the sights in this magical place. At night I can crawl on the glistening grass so green, while the night rain washes my house so clean. I look up at the twinkling stars and the bright shining moon. Then my house and I slowly, slowly, slowly go back to my little habitat surrounded by rock where I curl up in my house and slowly, 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 slowly falls asleep. Details of Marie McGowan's book, Stones and Stories, can be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Moody. And while you're there, you might want to check out details of another book from former RTE radio producer John Quinn. It's called Stolen Moments, and the moments collected range from the loss of a loved one to the nuisance of dandelions... But the moment that caught my eye was the chapter on the lost art of whistling, which we'll get to shortly. Earlier, we spoke with John about his latest offering. Latest offering, thank you, Derek, is a book called Stolen Moments. I did a book for Veritas about 10 years ago called Moments, which is just about what it says on the tin. There are little moments in your life, things you may see, things you may hear, a book you might read, the poem, line of a poem you come across, a story you've been told. And I think, anyway, it's important to record them. And, and I can't quote them, but I picked up the notion from a guy called William Wordsworth, the poet, uh, who said there are moments in all our lives which are worth recording because they can later on nourish us and heal us and console us or, or whatever. So that's this book is, if you like, book two of moments. It's just a collection of little incidents in, in my own life or in other people's lives, um, as I say, a song I heard, the line of a poem, an experience I had, um, and uh, just reflecting on them and then uh, putting them together to make a book. Now, there's a lot of wildlife references in there. Yeah, well, I hadn't you in mind when I wrote the book, Derek, but I'm, yes, there, are, <laughs> there, there, are, uh, there are things like dandelions. There, there's a, a one on magpies. There's... A, very important article that you might get time to talk about, about a guy called Richard Louvre, L-O-U-V, on the importance of nature in, in, in childhood and children experiencing, having what he calls a primary experiencing, experience of nature, the world around them, rather than Googling everything and never any, if you like, having a warm wriggle in their hands, but they could tell you everything about the life cycle of the one because they've Googled it. So, yes, there are, uh, and there's a thing, I mean, what you, you send it on, I, I didn't think at the time, but uh, there's a piece in it about whistling. I was just talking about the last start of whistling among humans, but of course I was forgetting that there are wonderful whistlers uh, all about us every day uh, in the bird population. So, yeah, you could, there's plenty. It's a wild book. Indeed it is. Now, it's called Stolen Moments, and all of the panel have got a copy of your book, so they're all thrilled to receive it in the post. Amy, we'll start with you. What did you like from this book? 
Well, I want to start off by congratulating John on the book, but I must take issue with you, John. I always read the introduction first. And here you are in the introduction talking about the moment you see that you're talking about and the moment may be as major as the loss of a loved one or as minor as the nuisance the nuisance of dandelions. And then you have a whole chapter and you start off by trying to mow the lawn for an inch of its life and getting very mad indeed when the yes. dandelions have the nerve to come back. And it took a fair in America, an American yes. fair, to absolutely I, convince right, you right, of the worth of dandelions. Now, come on, what's going on? Although I see yeah. you repent it because there's actually a dandelion on the front cover of the book. Oh, so yes. tell us, what do you what do you mean well, about the dandelions? Road to Damascus conversion, if you like, it's dandelions, damn them. Used to be the bane of my life, and of course, like all good suburban livers, uh, li- uh, people who live in, in suburbs, I, I mowed my lawn diligently, and, and, and uh, of course, it was lovely for about a half an hour. Or the next morning, these awful yellow headed feathers appeared, dandelions everywhere, and I took great pleasure in going around with my walking stick and beheading them uh, in singular dandelions or in trumps or whatever. But one day I got a, a message from my daughter in, in Long Island, New York, and she sent a photograph on, on the phone of having fun at the Dandelion Festival. And I said, what? A Dandelion Festival? So I inquired, and there is a guy who, who lives out near her in, uh, in Long Island. Uh, he has a ranch there, and every year he holds a Dandelion Festival promoting the, the wonder of dandelions and how wonderful they are for the bees. They're the first flowers that the bees uh, can avail of, and that's, they're also wonderful for your health. You can have dandelions in your salad, so the stalks of them, you, you can, the kids can, can have donuts with dandelion uh, topping on them and so on. So I was converted, and I know I know I'm a great respecter and lover of dandelions, and I welcome them, and I don't behead them anymore. But you'd be glad to know I have been converted. But I wouldn't be, wouldn't have been alone in thinking, looking on uh, from suburbia anyway, and looking on dandelions as weeds and as nuisances, and it's destroying the the beautiful lawn that you mowed yesterday is suddenly ruined by the appearance of these yellow heads. But I can see now, um, you can you can these often, you know. In a, I can see now that uh, I, I've seen the error of my ways. I have repented. I love dandelions now, and I wouldn't go near them, and I welcome them, and I don't go and see them as nuisances and weeds anymore. But I wouldn't have been alone, I would have thought. In fact, there is another article in the book now that I think of. There's a piece in it called Long Live the Weeds. So, I mean, I've, I'm totally converted now, and this is this is my apologia. So I, I'm sorry for all the things sins I've committed against dandelions. And I promise never to commit them again. I accept your apology then. So this is grand. And your beech tree is doing well in your lawn and hopefully the grass is diminishing and as the tree spreads. Yes, yes it is. It's slowly, but uh, uh, but the main thing is the the dandelions are are, are welcome. Richard. John, uh, one thing I love is the style. In that, I think you must have been a print journalist at some time because print journalists learn to be concise and precise. Hemingway cut his teeth as a journalist and it shows in his writing afterwards short sentences to the point, nothing laboured, very, very good. He wrote a series called In Our Time, if you ever read it. It's a little set of vignettes like yours. And now... There's many well, that... I've mentioned in the same breath as Hemingway, but I'd well, be a long, long way off. But I, I have, I mean, I was primarily a, a radio broadcaster, as you know, and I was a teacher before that. But I, I've been writing for the last 20, 25 years or so for children and for adults. And, and yes, the, the, one of the, the great lessons of writing is to use that awful American acronym, KISS, keep it simple, stupid. Yes. But thank you, Annie, for the compliment. Uh, as you read it, um, it's deceptive in a sense because um, sometimes you come across uh, something that is a kind of reminder or kind of a revelation. The thing on whistling, somebody mentioned whistling there. Now, when I read that line, yes, the whistlers have disappeared. I grew up in Limerick, and in Limerick we had messenger boys, as they were called, and they whistled, as you mentioned them. And you don't hear that anymore. Well, no. well, there are no messenger boys anymore, I suppose, is one of the reasons. But yeah, uh, I, I just think it's not, even on a building site, it, 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 it struck me one day that, you know, nobody, nobody whistles anymore. 
and I wondered why, and that's just me wondering out loud. Yeah, it was an interesting one because I had uh, we had a lady from England staying with us last week, and um, Barbara went out to get the messages. You see, and she was she was fascinated. But what the messages for her? A message was a communication, information of some sort. The idea of going up for groceries and they being messages, and I began to puzzle: Why on earth would they? Did we come to call things like getting the newspaper and? pounds of butter or whatever as messages well your book actually brought mentioned the word messenger boy and that's what if the boy got a message from his employer to go to somebody's house and bring them oatmeal porridge or whatever it was do you see so that would be the sort of it and whistling it it has vanished it's a sort of thing uh, and I never noticed that it had vanished. It's like everyone wore hats when I was young, all the men. And the women all wore scarves. You never, men don't wear hats like that anymore, and women don't wear scarves. And you don't notice it until somebody points it out to you. Well, you've pointed that out, you know. Uh, whistling is actually interesting. It's strange that it's never caught on as a kind of musical form and in a serious way. You had fellas like Ronnie Ronaldi and fellas like that, but they were peripheral circus performer types, you know. It's strange that it didn't really catch on. And whistles, of course, are great for a birdie person like myself is interested in whistles. You know, the Whistler Swan in America is the American version of our uh, Buick Swan, you know. And then you have the Seven Whistler. The Seven Whistler is, of course, the um, Wimble. And he goes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But, of course, there are wonderful whistlers among the, the, in the hedgerows, as you pointed out. I was just thinking of fellows like, you know, you and I are obviously of an age to remember people like, Ronnie Ronaldo would come on. When you think about it now, it really was a kind of a circus. I'd come on stage and just whistle in front of an audience. Mm. It sounds mm. ridiculous. But uh, the, the art of whistling, a la the messenger boy, certainly has, has, has died or has almost died as far as I, I can see well, of course, when it comes to whistling to an audience or in front of an audience, we have our Dawn Chorus programme each year, which is exactly what happens. Their birds are whistling to an international audience. And uh, you obviously you reflect there on the Dawn Chorus in your book. I think that, uh, yeah, whistling as a lost art, I suppose for me... It never has been because I always associated with the sound of birds because the way that the vast majority of birds make their sounds, their vocalisations, is through whistling. They might not sound like a human whistle in all cases, but it's actually made by, by basically the passing of air through an aperture that can be um, expanded or narrowed uh, to, to change the pitch of the sound. And that's exactly the way that birds produce that sound. And I think that that is something that, yeah, it's been kind of a lost art. We humans don't really communicate in that way. But I remember um, a few years ago, I had the great pleasure of being on one of the Canary Islands, Lago Mare where they have this whistling language uh, and it actually developed so that uh, shepherds and goat herds in this very mountainous landscape could communicate to each other across the valleys, huge distances. What they would do is they would whistle because that would carry much further than the speech and they would they would have the inflections of the speech patterns there doing that and that's now being taught in the schools on this island. It's, it's, it was, uh, it was a, an art that was dying but it was saved just from extinction and I realised actually yes through whistling you can communicate much further than you could by shouting they could get the, you know, the, the proper clarity of speech here exactly the way that the birds do it so maybe we should bring this back that's what I think. Whistling was only ever done by men women were not allowed to whistle and the thing was, a whistling woman and a crowing hen are good for neither God nor men. The sheepdog, the, the guy who uses sheep, sheep, uh, sheepdog to round up his sheep and that he communicates by whistling, which always fascinates me, how, he, how his, his commands can be communicated by a particular kind of whistling, whistling and the dog obeys him and does what he wants. I remember, actually, that's just reminding me there, John, there was a wonderful paper many, many years ago in the ornithological journal British Birds, and it was a report of a jay, a member of the, the crow family. Yeah, very good, the colourful crow. crow. That's what we always call it on this yeah. programme. Uh, and uh, it had been listening to uh, to a shepherd um, who was controlling a sheepdog using whistles. The um, bird had picked up how to imitate these whistles and was then controlling the dog himself. He seemed to get great pleasure <laughs> out of getting the dog to do random things all over 
the field. Is got, that true? Yeah, totally yeah. confused. And in the end, in the, end the, the farmer ended up shooting the jay to oh. stop this, this happening because the sheep were getting worried. But it just shows the way that, yeah, I think it's interesting that even the birds might pick up on human whistle. Like, it's quite interesting. You mentioned Ronnie Ronaldo or Ronnie Ronaldo, who you mentioned in that chapter about whistling. And he was a famous whistler, a performer, a singer. John, we'll play one of his tracks in just a moment because when I looked at his hit list, there's lots of avian-themed songs in there. Indeed. And if you listen to them, he doesn't just whistle. He's a great yodeler as well. We'll come to that in a moment. But just before we say goodbye to you, one of my favourite poems in your book is about being the age of two, which you wrote for your grandson. Tell us about that. Well, that that, that sums it up. As you say, I wrote it for my grandson, Senan, when he was two and put it on a card to him. Uh, It's all about being the fun and the wonder and the magic of being two. And I hope, in a sense, that all of us are still two. So uh, that it was it's written for him, and it was just a kind of a list of all the things you can do when you're two, when you're free and independent, and you know you don't have the hang-ups of an adult, and you have imagination and you have curiosity. So, do you want me to read it for you, or please do, John? Yeah, okay. For just a year, it was great being one, but now that you're two, you'll have such fun. You can jump in a puddle when you're out in the rain, and look for a cuddle when you have a little pain. You can explore the jungle, sail a pirate sea, or roar like Tarzan from the branch of a tree. You can learn fun words like wobble or wiggle and squashy and snuggle and bubble and squiggle. You can chase and hide and run and run. Oh, being two is endless fun. You can be a dinosaur or a dragon with fire in his belly. And then cool down with ice cream and jelly. And the great thing about being two is that you only have to be just you. But best of all, I'm sure you'll agree, is that now that you're two, you'll soon be three. Isn't that just the most beautiful poem you have ever heard? It doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're two or three, 23, 33 or 93, that's going to pull at your heartstrings. John, thank you very much indeed. And in that chapter on the lost art of whistling, which really grabbed my attention because I was thinking of birds whistling and the fact that I can't whistle anymore because of a small procedure I had performed on my lips some months ago. Anyway, you mentioned Ronnie Ronald in that chapter, the lost art of whistling. He was a famous British music hall singer back in the day, known for his whistling, his yodelling and his bird imitations. And amongst his bag catalogue, there's a heap of songs with bird names in them. So I'm going to take you back in time now, sit back, relax and listen to Ronnie Ronald singing, whistling and yodelling Mockingbird Hill. When the sun in the morning peeps over the hill And kisses the roses round my windowsill Then my heart fills with gladness when I hear the trill Of the birds in the treetops on Mockingbird Hill Tra-la-la, twiddle-a-dee-dee, it gives me a thrill To wake up in the morning to the Mockingbird's trill Tra-la-la, twiddle-a-dee-dee, there's peace and goodwill You're welcome as the flowers on Mockingbird Hill Got a three-cornered plough and an acre to till And a mule that I bought for a ten-dollar bill There's a tumble-down shack and a rusty old mill But it's my home sweet home up on Mockingbird Hill Awake up in the morning to the Mockingbird's trill When it's late in the evening, I climb up the hill And survey all my kingdom while everything's still Only me and the sky and an old whippoorwill Singing songs in the twilight on Mockingbird Hill In the morning to the mockingbird's trill (laughs) 
the light from the TV gives me a thrill to wake up in the morning for the mockingbird's thrill. Tra la la, tra la dee dee, let's be sang for real. You're welcome at the flowers on Mockingbird Hill. Great Ronnie Renald with Mockingbird Hill. They don't make them like that anymore, I can tell you. They certainly don't perform like that anymore. The talent of the man. Anyway, details of John Quinn's book, Stolen Moments, available on the website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Staying with music. A few weeks ago, I mentioned the Corrigan Brothers, old friends of the Mooney show on RT Radio 1. And they wrote a song some years ago called It's Amazing What You Learn on the Mooney show, talking about all the different things you find out when you listen to Aina, to Richard, to Niall and Terry, to Jim, Matthew. Jeb, Ken Whelan and all of the contributors to Mooney Goes Wild you see anyway I didn't have a copy of it and I just said a few weeks ago if anybody had a copy will you send it in to me I'd like to play it again and Jer Corrigan himself got in touch saying no problem Derek I have it I was listening to the show here it is feel free to play it again but would you say a big hello to all of my friends in Quality Tractor Parts Mullingar they're great people and great friends and I said no problem so we leave you with the Corrigan Brothers singing all about The Mooney Show. Until next week, with a special on Christmas gifts from our panel. Bye! I heard a woman talking about her pet rat. A man from Tulla gave his elephant a bath. A fella with a pet snake in Port Leash. And a shark like Jaws down on Kilkee Beach. Wildlife, nature, I don't know. It's amazing what you hear on The Mooney Show. Confused, he has to see a shrink. A squirrel who has a bath in the kitchen sink. A dog who changes channels on the skybox. And a cuckoo with a morbid fear of clocks. Wildlife, nature, I don't know. It's amazing what you hear on the Mooney Show. Wildlife, nature, I don't know. It's amazing what you hear on the Mooney Show. Like David Norris, the tiger that escaped into my Boris, a poodle with an Irish wolfhound's bark, and a pair of blue tits in the Phoenix Park. A dog who barks like mad when Brian comes on TV. A cat who gets a furball when she hears George Lee. A puma roaming wild in the doll. He'll do us all a favor when he eats them all. Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.